With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. When it was time to get funding for this project, the team there said, we really like this idea, but we've decided to take the business in a different direction. We're not going to fund this. We're divesting our U.S. business. Let's not pursue this idea. And so that was the beginning of what would ultimately be my own company. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Jen Sargent, founder of the entertainment news site HitFix and current COO of Wondery, the largest independent podcast publisher. They have a whole host of podcasts, and I imagine you've heard of at least a couple. I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. I'm Robert Moore, and this is Joe Exotic. This is the true story of the Billionaire Boys Club. The dating game. Dying for sex. To we crashed. Before the Cambrian explosion of podcasts we live in today, Jen tapped into a myriad of exciting adventures. From an engineering degree to a J.P. Morgan desk to work abroad to Harvard Business School, she's done it all. But the one constant in her zigzagging career is her knack for fixing things. You could say it runs in the family. My dad was a mechanical engineer. And being a mechanical engineer, he was someone who always tinkered. So one of my earliest memories is him just fixing anything. Anything from the garbage disposal to the furnace to the lawnmower to our revolving set of cars in our driveway that ultimately, you know, one of them always needed to be fixed. If I'm thinking about how I was when I was a kid, I would view that as almost magic. Like, I just know how much I idolize my dad. And whenever he would even fix something, I'd be like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? Or how do you know that? Did you have similar thoughts? Yeah, I didn't have anything to compare it to, except that both my parents could always fix it, whatever the problem was. They they were really good at problem solving, both of them. But my dad in particular, being an engineer, I associated engineers with problem solvers. And I don't think I was ever able to stump him with something broken, especially something mechanical or electronic that he couldn't somehow fix or duct tape together to make it work again in some fashion. As any engineer would know, the second law of thermodynamics states that an isolated system naturally degenerates into a state of entropy. In layman's terms, things tend to get chaotic. Our universe is spiraling towards an inevitable heat death of extreme entropy. That includes Maryland suburbia. A life of consistency and stability won't stay that way forever. That's just the second law. 
And this is especially true if you have the spirit of an entrepreneur. Inherently, you take risks, try new things, and live a life of chaos. But an entrepreneur like Jen is able to piece together this messiness and this chaos and bring order. This way of interacting with the world is something she got from her father. He pushed back against the second law. If a garbage disposal got jammed, he has his hand in the sink. If the lawnmower won't start, he's revving it up with full force. Cars break down, he's got a set of jumper cables ready to go. And Jen saw her dad bring order to these broken down cars more than a few times. You had a theme of fixing and breaking down cars in your family. Can you talk to me about one of those times? Oh, yeah. I could talk to you for a a long time about that. It was, um, you know, a combination of a a source of great embarrassment as a child, as well as uh, a source of great learning. Just to give some context, my parents always had three cars. And because my dad was able to fix anything, he just kept one of them always revolving on the driveway, getting fixed. And when the other cars were in commission, so to speak, we would often break down around town. I have a lot of childhood memories of our old jalopy cars breaking down on the way to the grocery store, on the way to the mall, on the way to you name it, and they broke down. Sometimes we would have to walk along the side of the highway to find a telephone. Uh, Sometimes we would have to hitchhike home. Other times uh, we would have to just hang out and wait for a state trooper and hope that someone drove by to help us. Uh, So I really um, saw a lot of different scenarios. Uh, Some of the things I remember most, though, were rainy days where my parents would try to inevitably drive me to middle school and I would basically turn down their offers and walk in the rain however far I needed to walk just to not have their old jalopy pull up in front of my school because it was just a real source of embarrassment for me to have the oldest car uh, around town and having people see us break down. But with all those breakdowns, it seems like there was always something to be done. Was there a helplessness or was it always, okay, like now we're going to do this. Like, here's our plan. I think as a kid, I mean, you you feel helpless the first few times it happens. And then you start to have your own plan B and you start to think ahead of how you're going to deal with this situation course we had these these three old cars and one of them got deemed the car that Jen would be able to drive and the car really um, was on its last legs and I had a few incidents in a row where I would turn the car off go into a store go do something and I'd come back and the car would be dead so of course I had my dad who can fix everything take a look at the car and he determined that there was an electrical short so there was no real way to fix this electrical short So my dad's quick and dirty solution was to give me a pair of jumper cables and a 30-pound charged battery that I could carry around in the trunk and uh, give myself a jump start. It was kind of this funny experience to have a a 16-year-old girl, obviously new driver, 
really break down everywhere and people would come over and say, hey, can I help you? Do you need help? Whatever. And I'd say, nope, I got it. I got a battery in the back. I'm going to jumpstart myself. I got comfortable with asking people for help. And I think one of the early lessons I, I had from that experience was a willingness to take risks, having a plan B and, and, and being prepared. When you went from high school to college, what was your inspiration behind entering engineering? And how did your expectations match up to reality? Obviously, my dad was a big influence on that being the one engineer that I knew and someone that I looked up to. Uh, I thought at that time that engineers were problem solvers and I, I think I was right. But when I was in kind of my third year of engineering, I found myself frequently in a lab designing microprocessors at two in the morning with a bunch of dudes and just deciding that one, I was more social than that. Uh, but two, I also had an interest in business. I had an opportunity to do an internship between my third and fourth year in investment banking. And I think it was a, a friend of mine and, and they said, you know, don't get caught up on the fact that you didn't study business or you didn't study finance. If you've done engineering, you can transition into almost anything else. So I ended up taking a job full-time on Wall Street after college. That was JP Morgan. Jen traded in her career for another model, another system, engineering for investment banking. With engineering, Jen saw a bunch of sleep-deprived dudes in a dark lab. She couldn't recreate that sparkle in her eyes that ignited when she watched her dad fixing up his jalopy. Whether it be getting a new car or changing careers, re-evaluating your path is integral to shaping the life that you want. It's a big investment. It shapes how people view you and how you view yourself. At J.P. Morgan, Jen was going pedal to the metal in a new path, but a fork in the road would soon appear. J.P. Morgan thought, oh, we're going to put this engineer in our technology, media, and telecom group. And half of the projects were media-based companies. So I started to get more exposure to media. And it was during that time that I realized a few things. I realized, one, that I didn't love working 80 hours a week. And I looked at my bosses and their bosses. And I thought, gosh, I don't see a path here where people are not working crazy hours. But the other piece was that I really wanted to get my hands dirty. And so I was jealous of the companies on the other side who were taking our advice, but were really the ones on the ground doing the operational pieces of things and executing. That was my first inkling that, oh, I, I really want to do something more operational. And then when I looked at the types of companies that I was drawn to, media just kept popping up as the things that seemed really exciting. And just like that, Jen was off to the next thing. Her back-to-back -back career shifts had put the consistency and stability of her suburban upbringing off to the wayside. Her life was becoming far less predictable, but maybe it was a bit more exciting. Before she saw a clear-cut equation to success, she followed what her dad did and just plugged and chugged to get the same results. It's easy, simple, stable, consistent. 
all words absent from the lexicon of the entrepreneurial mindset that Jen was slowly gravitating towards. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to explain to your parents or your grandmother or to a friend or an acquaintance at a cocktail party what you do and have them look back at you with a blank stare and be like, oh, that sounds interesting and really just have no idea you know, what you're doing and what you're talking about. I certainly had that in engineering. I had a bit of that in investment banking. And as I got closer to media, it became easier and easier to talk about what I did and have people connect the dots. DoubleClick was really a fun time because everything on the web was exploding and DoubleClick was at the forefront of that. It was really one of the first companies to enable online advertising it was a fun time in my career to be in an exploding industry that was doing something really innovative. All right, so here we are, one of the uh, elephants. I have more cowbell. <laughs> Don't blow this forest, Jim! Dolly bit me. Go! <laughs> Jen had entered the early 2000s Wild West of the internet. What, what is internet anyway? Talk about entropy. Allison, can you explain what internet is? Challengers were throwing haymakers at incumbents left and right. New Davids were rising against Goliaths. Has the 1990s boom shattered old assumptions about how the economy works? And falling even more quickly. There is a new victim of the falling fortunes of the new economy. Pets.com is closing down. It was a total paradigm shift. For many people, they couldn't even imagine the existence of the job they were doing just a few years prior. And Jen was helping publishers get out of the Stone Age into this brave new world and help them make sense of all this entropy. She operated best when she was put in a new system and she would take her talents to a new system on the other side of the globe. I think part of my move to Germany was really fulfilling a personal interest and passion of mine to live abroad. I had always wanted to do that. So lucky for me, one venture capital firm gave me an offer and that just worked out perfectly. How did business differ between states and Germany? Definitely things were more clear cut. You stayed in your lane. The career changes I had had at that point were looked at as uh, adventurous and um unusual versus in the U.S. There's a lot more flexibility. It's a lot more entrepreneurial. And it just dawned on me that if I was going to start a company, Germany is not the place to do it. Do you think the comparison between what German society expected of you and what you actually were push you towards entrepreneurship even more? It was more of an aha moment when I realized that I wanted to be the entrepreneur and not the venture capitalist. I felt like I was invincible in my 20s. And so I wasn't afraid to go try or do something, even if it meant uprooting my life, because I didn't think I could fail. And I didn't think that anything was outside of my reach. And I think that goes back to my parents always being really encouraging, but also giving me room to take risks. And that fueled a lot of my choices. I would rather not be an advisor. I would rather be the operational person. I would rather be the entrepreneur on the other side of the table that I was writing checks to. My mind opened up to, okay, that's what I want to do. Now, how do I do that? Jen was materializing her goal of living abroad. 
Having that sort of independence gave her the confidence to aspire to be an entrepreneur. Why not? She was young. She could risk colossally screwing up. She didn't have major responsibilities back home tying her down. She had to forge new relationships and make a plan. Jen sought out this entropy and ventured to create order out of it. Having successfully solidified her identity and her place in Germany, now it was time to pursue entrepreneurship. The only problem was she didn't really have an idea. So I was ready to move on from Germany, but I didn't have my big idea. For me, when I decided that I wanted to become an entrepreneur, I was focused on making that happen. Whatever next steps I needed to take was the path I was looking for. And so without a trust fund, a large savings account, I thought I needed to meet more people, build a network, and frankly, round out my business experience. I never thought about an MBA prior to this epiphany moment, but I started looking into it and came to the conclusion that if I was going to go to grad school and put myself in debt, that I needed to get into the best school I could possibly get into and put all my effort into that. So you ended up at Harvard Business School. Why did you choose Harvard Business School? I could not imagine taking two years off of working, and that just felt like such a big sacrifice. And so I thought, I just have to make this worth it. At this point in her life, Jen saw herself as a car that needed a little sprucing up to make sure she was in tip-top shape for the long road ahead. Harvard gave her the best bang for her buck, the latter of which she had very little of. With the network pedigree and formal business training that came with Harvard, she could come out road ready. At Harvard, she learned the essential lessons that she'd returned to over the course of her career. These lessons ensured that she would stay true to her intended destination. There were a number of things I learned from the HBS experience. And one of the lessons I learned from one of my entrepreneurship professors was always own your IP. He gave us case after case of an entrepreneur having a great idea and then not owning their IP and getting ultimately their idea or their company ripped out from under them. In engineering, you make decisions off of 100% of the information. There's one right answer. It's very clear cut. In business, there are so many instances where you have to make what seems like a really big decision with 50% of the information. There's been times when you only have 30% of the information and you have to make this really big business decision. And HBS really gave me a toolkit and confidence in making those decisions when I didn't have all the information. The third thing I learned was observing people from all walks of life. And my walk of life was middle class and they were limited in terms of their business acumen and their financial resources. And when I got to HBS, I got to be side by side with people who were very wealthy, people who came from political families. And observing the way they operated and the way they got things done in their life was really one of my best learning experiences. This idea of leveraging your network and leveraging all of your resources to connect dots was really fascinating. 
surrounded by children of influence who could summon anything with a single call, Jen's middle-class origins were put into perspective. But this didn't discourage or intimidate Jen. It made her more determined not to get left in the dust. She would prove that she didn't need to be handed her success. She would build her network from the ground up. Applying a sound piece of advice from her HBS professor, she would stumble across an idea that was worth pursuing. Read Business Information came up as an opportunity kind of out of the blue. They were recruiting at HBS. And so I could be their digital expert. And so I would work out of their New York office. And in that time, I identified a gap in the market that really filled the gap between gossip and trade. How did you feel recognizing that gap in the market? This kind of seems like the the first stumble onto something that could turn into that big idea. Did you recognize it as that? Not initially. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of would-be entrepreneurs make where they feel like their idea needs to change the world and it needs to be so groundbreaking and needs to be never been done before. When in reality, some of the most successful businesses out there make incremental improvements on the status quo in a way that's meaningful and profitable. When it was time to get funding for this project and we went up the flagpole to London, the team there said, we really like this idea, but we've decided to take the business in a different direction. We're not gonna fund this, we're divesting our US business. Let's stay trade and not pursue this idea. We also found out that we were getting sold off as a division. I didn't come to it overnight, but after a series of conversations with one of the people I was working with on the project, we decided we were both really passionate about it. We thought there was a gap. We thought we could do it with or without variety. I thought, gosh, I can't pursue this unless I can own this idea because otherwise there's just no point. So that prompted me to go to legal and HR and essentially ask for a carve out from my contract. Luckily, they said yes. And so that was the beginning of what would ultimately be my own company, uh, Hitfix. Jen heeded the words of her HBS professor, own your IP. Jen wasn't sure of what her future held, but she was sure this idea had potential. And to pursue it, she had to own it. Variety rejecting her idea actually presented an opportunity. It was the wake-up call that ignited her entrepreneurial spirit, giving Jen the courage to pursue her itch for impact. The only thing standing in her way was funding. But she would find investors in some unexpected places. Somewhere during the summer of 2008, I was having a beer with a friend, and he asked me what I was up to. And I, I pitched him Hitfix, and he said, oh, that sounds really interesting. You know, what's the next step? And I said, well, I don't really have any money. I'm in debt from business school, but I, I think I need some seed capital to get this thing off the ground. And he said, oh, well, how much do you need? Of course, I hadn't thought this through, and I said, oh, I, I need a million dollars. Okay, what's your minimum investment? And I said, uh, 25K. And he said, well, I need to double check with my wife, but if she's in, we'll be your first 25K. 
And then he proceeds to say, well, this should be super easy for you, Jen. I mean, you went to HBS, you worked in banking. A lot of your friends, they're still bankers. And I said, oh, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I, I just was thinking, how do I, how do I raise money? And so his yes over a beer gave me some motivation to reach out to some of my former colleagues from JP Morgan and give them the same pitch, uh, to which many of them said yes. So it was just like a yes and then another yes and then another yes. Did you feel that momentum building? They weren't all yeses, but I was okay with no's. And anybody that gave me a no, I said, no problem. Do you know anyone else who might be interested in this investment opportunity? And so at this point, I had gotten a lot of yeses without collecting any checks or having any paperwork. But one of the more sophisticated investors was an angel group in New York. And I believe it was around September 30th, uh, 2008, which is when then the stock market had crashed. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars. And before the market had opened that day, they had sent me a term sheet. Wait, with everything going on with all of that financial tumult, were you worried? I basically started to get worried in September, but I had already started the process of creating paperwork from my round. And at that point, before Lehman collapsed, I don't think everyone was quite sure how bad it was going to be. I was lucky in my timing that I had a lot of momentum around some paperwork ahead of Lehman. And so just from my little bit of finance experience, I knew, okay, this is probably my one shot. I've got to hold on to this term sheet and not let go. And I've got to do whatever it takes to get this term sheet closed because it might be the last funding I get for who knows how long. So that's exactly what I did. I just held on to that term sheet. I made it work. And we finally got it closed in January 2009 to launch the company. So I took a leap of faith and launched in December, hoping it would close in January. It did. And then we were off to the races, so to speak. How did HitFix develop? We started by bringing in exclusively tastemakers, people who guided entertainment choices, who were known for being the number one movie critic, the number one TV critic, the number one music critic, people with a name and a following who could bring their following to HitFix. So that's how we initially grew. And one of our critics, a guy named Drew McQueenie, who's this really fabulous movie critic, he was able to break some news within a week or two of us launching. And that really put us on the map as, oh, who's this HitFix company? What do you mean, break some news? I don't know if you're a movie fan. Um, there was this movie called Watchmen. It's a matter of time, I suppose. The movie had been delayed and delayed and delayed, and comic book fans had just been up in arms that this thing hadn't gotten made. Basically, our movie critic ended up getting an open letter from the Watchmen producer who was essentially sharing the dirt and grievances of why this movie had not been made. And it really satisfied the fans, and he gave it exclusively to HitFix. It just propelled us into a legit site. We'll be right back after this break. We've recently been getting some more listeners, but for some reason, we haven't seen much of an increase in our podcast ratings. 
So to understand a little more, I called Best Buy and tried to figure out what's going on with the ratings. Thanks for calling Geek Squad and Cotton and this is Agent Lewis. How may I help you? I was looking at a Yeti blue condenser microphone with a 4.9 star rating, but a Best Buy customer who goes by the name of Sunnyboy682 rated the mic one star. I just wish there was like a way that I could be certain of what I was getting. Like, you know, when I listen to my favorite podcast, Finding Founders, it only has five star reviews. So it's whenever it's one of those things that someone could easily just do like a one star or they could do a five star if they wanted to just because they like the name of it. When you say um, like the name people, of it, do you like the name of that podcast, like Finding Founders? What is it? Finding Founders. Do you like that name? Like, would you give that five stars? I mean, I do like the name. It's catchy. Yeah. Um, kind of so has too. a rhythm to it, I guess. Yeah. I like the name Finding Founders too. And guess what? It's super easy to leave a review. It takes less than 30 seconds. So if you're listening right now and you haven't given Finding Founders a five-star review, I'd be eternally grateful if you took a few seconds and wrote us a review. It really helps and allows us to get better guests. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Now, back to the podcast. Where did it feel biggest and most likely that it was going to like explode? Where did you feel that you were closest to breaking through that ceiling? As an entrepreneur, I, I think it's fair to say that that feels like a roller coaster in a big way, but it's a lot of highs and lows. Fast forward a few years, it was probably around 2013 where I was at Comic-Con in San Diego and I had random people on the street know who HitFix was and, and, and tell me more about my site than I knew. And I thought, wow. We had gotten inbound interest from potential acquirers along the way. And that felt very gratifying to see larger companies want to potentially acquire us. And then I think as we brought on bigger and bigger talent and names, that also felt like, wow, okay, you know, we are attracting talent and that is really exciting. You can hear the pride in Jen's voice. She had created a company from nothing. It wasn't just growing, it was growing exponentially. HitFix was attracting bigger and bigger talent and it was getting bigger and bigger. The pride she felt came from personal creation. When you see something you've made, when you know the imperfections, the quirks, the things needed to get it going, and the things that might make it stop, that's when there is love, affection, and memory infused into that product. It might not be the prettiest thing, but it is yours. HitFix was Jen's. But despite the growing success of her company, there would be an unexpected turn in the road. How did things change in 2015? I saw a shift in terms of the type of content we were doing, where we were doing written content. We had gotten into podcasts a bit, but more and more things were going to video. You really need economies of scale when you're talking about video because the production cost is a lot higher. So that was some of the factors contributing to me seeing that the tides were turning, that HitFix by itself might not be able to win in that scenario and that we were going to have to be part of a larger platform in order to succeed. 
I feel like that's a tough realization to come to, right? When you start it off, you even describe it like it's the big idea. This is a, a filling an exciting gap in the market. And then to realize maybe this isn't as big as I thought it was. How did you come to terms with that, that realization? I mean, it was a number of things. It was, you've put so much time and energy into this thing. It's like a child and you want it to succeed, whether it's independent or part of something else. And you start to think about what is the best path and how is it going to flourish? That was more my thinking than, oh, this isn't big because I saw companies getting into our space. So I knew that it was interesting. I knew that there was opportunity there, but could we execute and grow fast enough to compete with Facebook, Buzzfeed and Vice Media and, and these companies that had raised exorbitant amounts of funding and we're really powered by technology and more a platform and less about the content and wanting HitFix to flourish and kind of realizing what our shortcomings were. You describe it as like, I'm just on to that next plan B. Was it that easy? Oh, no, no. I mean, the first few years of HitFix, it was really uh, a difficult time. The recession didn't just happen in fall of 2008 and then be over and recover. It bled into 2009, 2010, 2011, and it really influenced our decisions around funding and that kind of thing. So it influenced our trajectory, I think. And so by the time I got to that decision in 2015, I had already had a lot of these realizations. I already had observed you know, how hard it was to grow a business during a recession. I really just wanted the best for the business, for the investors, for the employees, and myself in terms of, you know, plan B, what was next. I feel like there's very little acknowledgement of those emotions that must have been coming out. Do you feel like you gave yourself time to acknowledge almost a loss, or did you even view it like that? Yeah, I did. You, you know, I, I think the harder thing is when you're a, a founder or, or an executive at an early stage company, it's very lonely. It's an island and you're in it, but you're the leader of it. And so you don't have the same group of people to talk to about it typically that you would if you're just an employee at a company or you're not a major stakeholder. I think I waited too long to sell and too long to pursue an acquisition and opportunities had come along the way. And I had always thought, well, there's so much more in front of us than behind us. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep pushing. I owe it to myself and the investors and the employees to just push a boulder up a hill when I see signs of difficulty in the market. Was there a moment where you broke down? I got to the end of 2015 and a very good friend of mine passed away unexpectedly. And he was my age. Uh, we went to UVA together. We did JP Morgan together. And it was kind of one of these life moments that makes you stop and look and assess and say, wait a second, what am I doing? What am I trying to prove? What do I really want? And oh yeah, life is short. So you better make the best of it. I was trying to make sure I did right by my investors. I felt very strongly that I needed to be a unicorn in their portfolio, that I needed to return just amazing returns on their investment. 
they had believed in me personally and invested in me personally. And I felt very responsible for the money and time that they had put into HitFix. Up until that moment, I think I had prioritized what might be best for them over what was best for me. And it was that moment when my friend passed away that finally something clicked and I was like, no, I'm gonna do what's best for me and what's best for the company. I had received a term sheet that week that he passed away. I decided I'm gonna sign this, I'm gonna make this one work. And that ended up being Uprox. They acquired us in 2016. Jen needed to do what was best for her, but at the same time, she couldn't abandon her company. With the death of her company, and now with the death of her friend, You would think Jen would slow down to acknowledge this emotional turmoil. But no, she drove right past. Like Jen said, entrepreneurs can be lonely islands. When the tide is manageable and low, she felt like she was invincible. But as the tide rose and she was barely above water, it was easier to succumb than to fight the tide. She let Uprox wash over and envelop her company. And she emotionally detached so she could move on. And so she did. She moved on. How does it feel working for kind of your company, but not your company? It's very strange. And I think it doesn't work out for a lot of founders. I went into it with an open mind. I I honestly had no idea. Part of me thought, okay, I will get this thing integrated. I will transition and then I'll be out and I'll start my next company. (laughs) That's what I thought. So I, I thought it would be a six month exercise. Within six months, I had integrated everything and and worked to get everything where we wanted it to be. But so many changes had happened at the company during that time. The CEO that had acquired my company had stepped down. We had a lot of management changes. The board had changed direction on some things. And all of a sudden, I was invested in the outcome. And I guess I just got kind of sucked in. And so an opportunity came up for me to become president of Uprox. I said, okay. And I ended up doing that for the next two years, which was not necessarily my intention or expectation going into it, but was just more adapting to the circumstances of what was going on at the time. Jen said she just got sucked in. The story she tells doesn't seem to contain much agency or really even a conscious decision. She had been at the helm of her own company for so long, maybe it was just nice to roll with the punches. She entered a reactive state instead of a proactive state. However, Uproxx would merely be a turning point towards a company and a mission she would be truly passionate about. Adapting to those circumstances, how did you discover Wondery? Kind of like, and I'm not a spiritual universe kind of person, but it it was one of those moments where I felt the universe was telling me to take a look at Wondery. It was very early in 2018, and I was having a conversation with a former advisor of mine who 
you know, was basically giving me some career advice. And he said, you know, I just had something cross my desk that just sounded exactly like you. It's the COO of a company called Wondery. And I was like, oh, Wondery, the podcast company? And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, I I think I'm going to get out of media. Next day, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, CEO of another company, and was chatting with him. And he said, you know, there's just this headhunter I really think I should introduce you to, just so you can see opportunities around LA. And I said, you know, okay. So he makes the introduction. The headhunter calls me that afternoon and he said, I'm just about to put the finishing touches on a search that you would be perfect for. And I said, great, what, you know, what is it? He's like, it's this company called Wondery. It's a podcasting company. I was like, oh my gosh, you're the second person. <laughs> and then I realized I'd been listening to Wondery podcasts um, and I ha- hadn't even realized they were from Wondery. And for all these reasons, I thought, well, let me just have this one conversation. I got to meet our CEO and founder, Hernan Lopez, who is incredibly impressive, smart, spent his career in Hollywood at Fox and had seen this gap in the market. But what I found especially impressive is his ability to go from a bigger company and running Fox International to scrappy startup. And not that many people can do that and succeed in both environments. And, and he is, is that person who is extremely adaptable. And I just thought the strategy he had set up was so smart. It was exactly what I would have done in terms of diversifying, creating an evergreen library of content and really filling a true gap. We started talking and that led to more talks. And eventually I joined as the chief operating officer in summer of 2018. And from that moment on, it has just been a whirlwind. I had no idea when I was joining the trajectory that podcasts would have in the market or Wondery as a part of it. So can you tell me about some of like the biggest um, wins that you've had since you've come on? I know that like the global launch of Dr. Death was a huge thing for you guys. Imagine that you're struggling with back pain for months, maybe years. No one can tell you what's wrong. You live with the pain day after day. You feel like your life is out of control and you can't find a way to take it back. Then you find a doctor. It's a miracle is all I've got to say about it. Dr. So when I joined, we hadn't launched Dr. Death yet. So I got to you know, help run that marketing plan and, and launch Dr. Death in the US in English. And that became the biggest podcast of 2018. In 2019, we had decided to expand globally and that there was an opportunity to be the first podcast publisher to do a true international release. So we we adapted and translated Dr. Death into seven local languages and released them all on one day. And it was phenomenal. We got to work with major partners like Apple and Spotify in the local markets. They helped us get some exposure for shows, but more importantly, to be able to fill a gap where podcast listeners in those markets had had just so little content to to listen to in many cases in their local language. And to be able to pull it off was really exciting and opened the opportunity for us to do a lot more internationally. So since then, we've been launching more and more shows in local languages. I feel like you've really built 
a lot more than just podcasts because now you are selling like original shows, IP for original shows. You even have an app. What is Wondery now? Because it, it seems bigger than just a podcast company. It is bigger. Wondery is a brand that's known for immersive, character-driven stories. And today that starts as a podcast, but tomorrow and in the future, it is my guess and also my hope that consumers find us first as a TV show or as a book or God willing, if events come back <laughs> as an event and then make their way back to the podcast because we are truly a content studio disguised as a podcasting company, but really creating stories and content that can transcend delivery mechanism. I mean, this is not just about audio, even though we're excellent at creating stories in audio and we take great care to make that audio experience truly unique and exciting. These stories are stories that just hold up in any medium. And so it's been our goal to tell stories that people care about, to uh, create this evergreen library of content and really distribute it in different ways. And so the global release of Dr. Death was, was one piece of that puzzle in terms of starting to create a, a, go, a global publishing company. Today, it starts with a podcast, but tomorrow, Wondery will be an international media mogul. For Jen, Wondery was her ideal company. I think one of her strongest suits as an entrepreneur is her commitment to her people. She understands that building a great product isn't about fulfilling her needs, but the needs of her customers. It's about delving into the psyche of the consumer, creating episodes like Dr. Death that are unforgettable. And not even an ocean can stop her from taking Wondery to the next level. Speaking of that next level, Wondery's new project puts their strengths on full display. One of those stories that's really exciting that's coming up is Boonga Boonga, I believe. From Wondery, the makers of Dirty John, Dr. Death, and The Shrink Next Door comes... How do you say it, Silvio? Boonga Boonga. Boonga Boonga. Boonga. Yes, I am so... I think we all, all of us that are working on this are so excited about this show because it takes everything that Wondery is known for and good at, at, and it wraps it up into one story. On the surface, this one is a biopic about Silvio Berlusconi, the former prime minister of Italy. But really, it's the story of one man kind of hypnotizing a nation and getting them to cater to his every whim. He, he started out as a cruise ship singer, and then he became a, a, a real estate tycoon, and then he went on to become a media mogul. And when the laws in Italy weren't working for him, he decided to get into government to change the laws. And as we follow his life and his story, it's, it's fraught with corruption, bribery, mafia, scandal, murder. It's filled with sex parties. That's where the name Bunga Bunga comes in. Uh, those are the parties he would throw. All of the crazy rabbit holes and, and stories, I mean, it, frankly, it's hard to decide what to put into an eight-part series because there's just so 
much great information that is gonna make everyone from news junkies and political junkies to fans of entertainment and true crime just just go crazy. So it, it's really fun. It's coming out on September 8th, but it's coming out early on the Wondery app and Wondery Plus, um, but it, it, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Boonga Boonga speaks for itself. It's Wondery's next thrilling story and a testament to the thriving podcast movement. But Jen has advice for you, the person listening to this podcast. Take risks, you know, especially when you're young. Be willing to, to try things. And especially when it comes to your career, you can always take a turn and you can always change your mind. But if you're learning and you're exploring and you're doing something you're passionate about or you're seeking to do things that you're passionate about, it will make work feel less like work. And along the way, just keep trying to adapt because I I think if there's one consistent theme to my story, it's this ability to adapt, whether your car breaks down on the side of the road or you're starting a company in the middle of a recession or you're trying to, you know, grow the most successful podcast company in the world. You have to be able to adapt to what is going on around you. And if you can do that, combined with passion, combined with learning new things, you know, you're going to find your path somehow. And it might take a few stops and starts, but you're going to find it. And I feel so lucky to have found that path. I really, I love Wondery. I love what we're doing. And I found myself in such a good place. And it's because of all these, these experiences along the way. Discovering opportunity within chaos seems to be the mantra of Jen's entrepreneurial journey. The seeds of this mantra were planted by her father, who saw the chaos of stalled and broken down cars as exciting engineering challenges. Jen observed this habit and subsequently pursued engineering. But she soon realized she could find a more relatable chaos in business. That road would have hills and deep, deep valleys. Though her venture wasn't as successful as she would have hoped, and the acquisition of the company was bittersweet, she refused to let that stop her entrepreneurial path. She continued. She looked for problems to solve, for chaos to order. She decided she would help revolutionize the podcasting industry, and she's well on her way to doing just that. I think we can take the following lesson from Jen's story. Chaos is opportunity. When life throws you a broken engine, a pothole, a sharp turn, life also gets more interesting. You have the opportunity to complain about the road you are on, or you can take action to improve, innovate, and overcome. Jen took action, and so can you. So I say, bring on the chaos. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. 
Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.